of the church. Uh, this is Paul's description of what it means to be the church. And, and more, more importantly than that, how God intends the, for the church to be. I mean, y'all, I know sometimes it feels like we are the ones who came up with the idea to meet together on Sunday morning, but that is absolutely not the case. What we're doing here this morning and what God has called us to be as people together is not, it's not a man-made invention. It's not, people did not come up with this. And that's exactly what Paul is describing here in chapter 2 of Ephesians. He's saying, how did this come about? And not just our church, not just Christ Central meeting here this morning, but all the churches that we have around this town and around the state and around the country. What in the world, how did this come about, this worship of the Lord? We're going to see exactly that from Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. Let me read it for us. Um, I'll read it from the uh, bulletin, but you can look behind me if you'd like to read the passage. I don't want to stand in anybody's way. We're going to start with verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, And without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is an absolutely incredible view at what the church is. What is the church? What is the point of meeting together? What is the point of what we do together? Paul has laid it out for us here, and it's all based upon the gospel. And here's how it works its way out. Last time, not last week, I want to say last week, but we had Eric last week. Last time we talked from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, it was this picture of the power of God, the power that was spoken about in chapter 1 of Ephesians, working its way out through an individual's life. And the way that it expressed it in chapter 2, it said, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but now you've been made alive through Christ. This huge transition has taken place. You were dead, you're alive. You were hopeless, you now have hope. Paul set up this dichotomy, and all because of the power of God, working in people's lives through the gospel. This week, 
we're going to see a similar contrast. That's our first point. But it works its way out like this in a corporate way. Not in an individual way. Not an individual going from dead in sins, alive in Christ, the grace, the gift of grace given to an individual. This is for the body, the body of believers, those who have united themselves with Christ through God's work in their heart. And here's how he expresses it. You were way far off. Now you've been brought near. That's how he expresses it in this passage. But let me lay some groundwork for us. The groundwork is, I think, summarized in a simple phrase. Something that I want for my kids. I wish they were in here to hear this. But I do not wish my kids to become famous. I do not want them to get fame and fortune. That sounds a little strange, doesn't it? And I wish the same for your kids, too. And why? Why would, why would I hope that my kids never become famous? Well, a lot of it has to do with a movie that I watched on the plane coming back. I was in Tampa, Florida this week, and I watched this documentary because it was one of the only choices on the plane. You know, they give you on Delta, and you have to do your little go-go app. And it's called McQueen. It's a fascinating story of this fashion designer. He grew up in a blue-collar town in England, I think Stratford, I don't know how to pronounce it. Staffordshire, sure. We'll go with that. But it was a textile town, and he learned really early on when he was young because his dad forced him to go find a job because his dad was a taxi driver. He said, I want you to go work in one of these textile mills that's right down the street because that's where they were located. And he got extremely good at sewing. He got really good at cutting fabric, at making men's suits. And so he decided to fly himself over to Italy. He became skilled, learned from some of the best designers in the world, and rose up the ranks in the design world. And by the early 2000s, he was one of the most well-known names in the fashion industry. I'm not saying anybody here is into it, but you would have known Alexander McQueen if you were into that thing. He was first hired by Givenchy, which is a French uh, fashion company, and then he was hired by Gucci, uh, and that's where he ended up. But the problem was, and you'll see this throughout the movie, is that as he rose through the ranks, he basically was raised with rags by his parents in this tiny little town in England. But he begins to become famous. And the more famous he gets, you start to watch his life begin to spiral out of control. And there's nothing about fame itself that makes someone spiral out of control. But here's the principle. It is lonely at the top. You see this all the time when you hear stories in your newsfeed about some Hollywood actor or director or something like that who's, who's in rehab for drug addiction or suicide from some of your fam- most favorite actors. It is extremely lonely at the top. And being alone is one of the worst things that we can experience as a human being. Hence, why I hope that my kids never become truly famous. Because you never can tell why someone wants to hang out with you when you're famous, right? You're like, do they want something from me? Are they just hanging out with me because I have name recognition and they can become somebody when they're around me? And you never feel like you can really be known at that point. And you know what the Bible calls that? Hell. That's what the Bible calls hell. It, it, if you read through scriptures... The Bible does not understand hell like the cartoons portray it. 
It does not describe hell like we see it in action movies, where somebody's like, hey, you know, you did some bad stuff, you know, you're probably going to hell. Or that's the same way it kind of plays out in cartoons. The way the Bible describes hell, and we see it with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's sweating blood, is separation from God. That is what the Bible describes as hell. Now, that's why feeling alone, being alone, has those same um, ways of dealing with the human heart. What we are meant for is relationship. What we are meant for as human beings is connection. And that's exactly what Paul is describing here. And here's how he begins it. The contrast. Let's dive right into our passage. Here's the contrast. He says, you Gentiles, you, if you really want to understand how awesome Jesus is, how wonderful this gospel is that you've been given, I need you to remember that you were once far off, but you have now been brought near. Sometimes people wonder, what is the real big difference between all these different religions in the world? Right? It's easy to think there's so many options out there. It's like a smorgasbord. You've got New Age religion. You've got, you know, I can be a part of Islam. Or, you know, we, Paul's here talking about Jews and Gentiles coming together. But the reality is this, that ultimately, Paul in the Bible, and this is true for most of history, things were divided into two, into two categories. You had Jews, and that's what he's talking about here in this passage, and then you had Gentiles. Those were the two categories. Gentiles includes all other races, all other religions. And the way that Paul in the Bible talks about all these other religions is that they have gods, of course. There were Roman gods. There were Greek gods. There are New Age gods. There are all these small g gods over here. And the way that you interacted with those gods is, and this is true for paganism, this is true for any other religion except for Judaism and now Christianity, you never had a relationship with those gods. Now, they gave you good things. It was always about blessing and curses, right? You, you had to bang a gong or you would go and make sacrifice, sacrifices to these certain gods over here. And it was always so that you could get some blessings or maybe keep away something that was cursing you and you wanted safety and so you would pray to these gods over here. But it was never about relationship with the gods. And that's what Paul is describing here in this passage. He said, all you've ever known, Gentiles because you aren't connected with the true God, the real God of the Bible, all you've ever known is being far off, being left alone. And let's look at some of the ways that Paul describes it from our passage. He gives us five distinct ways that Gentiles, those who didn't know the God of the Bible, how they were separated from a relationship with Yahweh, the God of the Bible. He says, first of all, you were, and you could read it right up here. First of all, you were separated from Christ. That's easy for us to understand, right? We have separations that occur in marriages, so we understand it in that sense. We also understand going our separate ways with a business partner, and we all know what that means, both of those scenarios, right? It means you're not going to talk to that person anymore. It means you're not going to get on the phone with that person anymore. You're not going to touch that person anymore. You're not going to want to be in the same room with that person anymore. Because there's animosity, there is estrangement, and there is separation. That's what Paul is saying. This is what you, that's what it was like for you and Jesus Christ. 
You were going your separate ways, no interaction, and here's the key point, no intimacy. None. So that's the first thing Paul says. You were separated from Christ. The second thing he says is you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Yay, this is an easy one for us. We're in Virginia, which is what? A commonwealth. Yay. Okay, so I don't, have to de- I don't have to describe very much going on here. But basically Paul is saying you were an alien from these people, this group of people. Have you ever been to a foreign country where you don't speak the language? What does it feel like? Anyone? Lost and alone. Precisely. I think a movie that... I love movies. You guys figured that out yet? (laughs) One of my favorite movies that gets at this feeling that I'm describing is called Lost in Translation. It's with Bill Murray, Scarlett Johansson. It was produced by Sofia Coppola. And uh, directed, I should say. But it's this powerful picture of two people who are feeling very alone and they are in a culture where they feel completely isolated. They're in Tokyo, Japan. And they both are trying to connect with one another, even though it would be an illicit relationship if they did connect with one another. But the movie does such a great job through the mood of the scenes and of the lighting and of the setting. Just just that feeling of being in a foreign culture where you don't really understand the people, you don't understand the language, and you just feel so incredibly isolated. And you are literally desperate for connection with other people. And that's exactly what these characters are like in the movie. Bill Murray and Scarlett Johansson do a fantastic job of the desperation that comes from feeling isolated and alone. And that's what Paul's saying. You were isolated and alone from the people of God. You had nothing to do with them. You couldn't speak their language. You couldn't go into the holy of the, even the temple areas where you were excluded from. And then he goes on. He says, you are strangers from the covenants of promise. Again, Paul is trying to get across to us in a very visceral way of how bad things really were before. Stranger danger. Have you been told that yet, Calvin? Stranger danger. That's what I tell my kids. Better not talk to one. Better not interact with someone you don't really know. Why? Because you don't really trust them at first blush. Because you don't know them. And that's what Paul is getting across here. He's saying, you you were shunned by God's people. They didn't even want to look at you. They didn't want to touch you. They didn't want to be around you. You were strangers from the covenants of promise. What were the covenants of promise? We studied one earlier this year with the Abrahamic covenant. God coming into relationship with Abraham. God coming into relationship with Moses. God coming into relationship with David. This is called the Davidic covenant. It's called the Abrahamic covenant. It's called the Mosaic covenant. And all those covenants have to do with the fact that God picks someone and enters their life in depth of relationship. And Paul's saying here, you had nothing to do with that. You were strangers from all of that. You had no connection to the true God of the universe. Finally, he, goes, he has kind of a double phrase here at the very end of this part. He says, you had no hope and you were without God in the world. Again, I think this is r- relatively easy to understand. He's basically saying your hope with these other gods that you're worshiping that aren't true gods was always merely for this earth, right? 
We all know this feeling of, if your hope is, I'm going to retire to Florida, and I saw tons of retirees when I was in Tampa, Florida. Basically, that's all there is there. I mean, it felt that way. The restaurants we went to, it was like we were by far the youngest people in the restaurant. But imagine if your entire hope is, I'm going to retire to Florida. And it was gorgeous. And let's say you get down there, and one month later, your health fails. What happens to your hope? It crumbles right there before you, right? If your hope is simply for this world and this world alone, it's not real hope. Paul describes that very thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, our hope is a real hope because it extends beyond the borders of our physical earthly life. And that's what he's saying here. Before you knew Jesus, you didn't have any of that. You had no hope. And he says, you were without God. That's that's the summary phrase for this whole part. You had no relational connection with the God of the universe. Toast. That's, and he's saying, that's the position you were in. If you were outside of Israel, if you were outside of the Jewish people, that was all you had. Do some, bang some gongs and hope that it rained or that you got pregnant. That was about it. It's a simplified version. But, but, there's good news, right? Paul's saying there's great news. You were once who were far off. You have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Oh, so sweet. What does that even mean? You've been brought near by the blood of Christ. Take a stab at it. Essentially what Paul is saying is all of the entry fees have been paid. It is ali ali and free. You don't, it's not, he's not saying, okay, but you got your act together, people. Or you finally figured it out you, through your philosophy and you, somebody wrote this great book and you, you got it into your head that, hey, I need to go be a part of the Jewish people. I need to be a part of the nation of Israel. I need to be connected to the God of the Bible, Yahweh. No, 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 no. He says, your entry point, your only entry point is the blood of Jesus Christ. And what is the blood of Jesus Christ? It is a payment. The only analogy I could think of this week was Augusta National. You ever heard of Augusta National? It's this incredible golf course. It's in Augusta, Georgia. And it's where this thing called the Masters is played, which is the premier golf tournament in the entire world. And they have Augusta National. This is a country club. I don't know if you guys like country clubs or not, but whatever. They have a total of about 300 members. And they like to keep it right at about 300. And I promise you, and I'm talking for myself here too, we have no chance to get in. (laughs) It is not going to happen. If you ask the question, how do I get in to be a member of Augusta National, you are already disqualified. Because they ask you. (laughs) Um, they They just... Uh, allowed a few, it's all the CEOs of the greatest companies, the largest companies in America. I mean, you go to Bill Gates and, you know, you name who's on this list of 300, but it's the most exclusive club, I would say probably in the entire world. This is saying, 
Being in relationship with God is 10,000 times better than being a member of Augusta National. And your entry fees have been paid. And you've been invited in. Imagine it. You're invited in. That is what Paul's saying. He's saying, can you even for a minute begin to understand the wonder and the glory of going from being far off, being separated, being alienated, being excluded, being alone, to now being brought near into the family of God. It is the most glorious thought a human being could ever have. Okay, point two. Tracking well. Let's talk about the change. So how does this happen? How does someone truly go from being far off, alienated, isolated, alone, in what the Bible describes as hell, to brought near, to in Christ, in the family of Christ? Well, of course, it is through Jesus. It says right here in the passage, He is our peace. And He made both of us one. Y'all, there was deep hostility between the Jews of Israel and the Gentiles of the day when Paul was writing this book and when Jesus was on the earth. There was deep, deep animosity. Because the Jews were like, we, the, the Gentiles are unclean. We can't touch them. We can't be around them. We have the law that protects us from being unclean, from, from being near these people. And obviously, those people, the Gentiles, looked at the Jews and said, oh my goodness, what a horribly exclusive and terribly uh, mean group of people. We don't want anything to do with them. So it was a load of animosity. And Paul's saying here that Jesus has brought peace. And this is not peace like good feelings inside. He's saying, no, there was a war, and now there is a white flag, and a treaty has been written, and there is peace between two sides. That is the power of what Christ brought to this earth. And yes, y'all, he is saying this is by, because the dividing wall of hostility has been broken. And this is a, both a specific application from this passage and a cosmic application for all of us sitting here today. There's two ways to understand this. And they're both, they go hand in hand. The first is the specific example of Jews being brought into relationship with Gentiles. That was revolutionary. Y'all, Christians were killed in the first and second century because of that thought alone. Just the thought of those two being brought together. You could be hanged, you could be burned. Okay? So, but there's a cosmic principle on top of that. And that is, we all come up with walls of hostility that need to be broken down for us to truly know and be close to one another. This still takes place today. And Paul is saying, the church should be the place. The church. The family of God, the home of God, should be the place where people have broken down those walls and that there is free-flowing love between the people that are in that. Now, let's, let's talk for a minute about this wall of hostility. Paul describes it as Jesus abolishing the law. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. I dug into that this week a little bit. What in the world does it mean that Jesus abolished the law? I'm actually looking to y'all to help me out with this one. <laughs> Kidding. It's a tough one, but one of the things that, that, that the Bible is getting at, and scholars disagree deeply about what exactly this means, but ultimately there is a sense in which it means 
What is something that you hold up as a divider between you and another person? Right? You might say, well, I can't really be in deep relationship with someone who's homeless because somebody who's, who's homeless hasn't worked hard enough. And so that's a wall that I've set up as a law that I can't really be near them. Or maybe it's another race. Or maybe it's another socioeconomic class. Or maybe it's another gender. I don't know what it is for you, but something you've set up and you've said, I can't really get close to them because of their lifestyle or because of what they're doing or not doing. Or we, we do this all the time. And Jesus said, I do not ever want you to judge. Do not be judgmental. There's one judge in all the earth, and you are not him. That is a big part of what Paul is talking about here. And not only that, but the ceremonial laws, the food laws have been abolished now in the, from the Old Testament so that you are brought near to the Gentiles. And y'all, this has application for us too. You might even be thinking in your own head, what are some of the ways that I put up walls between uh, myself and other people? And here's a key point. He's talking about for those that are in Christ. Those that are in Christ. Those that have received Christ. Those that have been called into the family of God. We are meant in this room, in this place, in this church, in the church. It could be any church within this town. We are meant to be connected in a, in a type of love that literally is radical to the rest of the world around us. Of course you're going to read about division on your news feed. Of course you're going to read about this country bombing this country or this person in the White House being mad at that person in Congress. Of course. But it's supposed to be through what God has done and bringing near to Christ, His people, it's supposed to be different within the church that the love we share transcends the dividing walls of hostility. So the, the question for us is, how do we reflect that? Jesus Christ has broken down the wall of hostility. If we are in Him, there is nothing, nothing that can hinder us from loving one another in this room. Nothing, it says. And he's saying, I am, Paul says, God is making a new humanity. A new humanity, something totally other, something totally different that reflects the heart of God within the church. Because we are reconciled to God, we are now reconciled to one another. That's what he says in this passage. And I'm going to end with this point. What does that look like for us, for the church? What does it look like to be a new humanity, for those walls of hostility to be broken down? And I'll let you go... Abolishing the law, it didn't abolish the entire law, right? There's still, Paul ta- Jesus talks a lot about these laws of love. Paul talks about these things, how we can live together in community and in harmony. There are still laws, but he's saying the things that divide us have been removed through Jesus Christ. Now, here's a few ideas as we conclude. A few ideas. What does the church look like now? Paul describes it here at the very end. In terms of, can you click the thing, Jacob? So Paul describes it through increasing intimacy. He first says, okay, here's what you are, church. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You're no longer strangers and aliens. But he goes further. He says, you're built on the foundation of the apostles, uh, the Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. So we have three levels of intimacy. No longer strangers and aliens, we're fellow citizens. 
right? Hey, a camaraderie has been built. I mean, don't you feel a camaraderie when we're cheering for UVA on the TV with the people? You don't even have to know them. If you're sitting near them, right, you're like, I'm connected to you because we're cheering for the same team. I don't, your team may not be UVA. That's perfectly fine. Uh, but it's my team. Uh, and there's a sense in which we feel a connection to those that are, live in Charlottesville. Hey, we're Charlottesvillians. Hey, we like certain things. We, we have, the culture has influenced us in certain ways, and you know, that, that's a part of who we are. Or we're Virginians. And boy, isn't that great? You know, my family history goes back really far, or whatever it is. There's these things that connect us as citizens. That's what he's saying for the people of God. There's things, hey, we're on the same team. We get to cheer for the same God. We get to be together and we get to celebrate the same things. Isn't that awesome? Amen and amen. But he goes further. He says, you're also members now of the household of God. He's taking the intimacy to the next level. He's saying, you're not only fellow citizens together, you are now a part of the same family. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. This one's a lot tougher. Family, those people... You can't get rid of. Right? They know you. you. You may not want your family to know you, but they know you. And you know them. And that's what Paul is trying to get across to us, y'all. Think about this is an application point for us as a church. You know the people in this room? You really know them, like you know your family. Or another question Have you let the people in this church in enough to know you? Do they know you? Like to where your family knows you? Where all your foibles, all of your nastiness has come out at points. But it's like, I love you anyway. And I'm going to keep loving you. And it's going to be hard. But that's the kind of love that Paul is saying the church should have for one another. So members of the household of God. And finally, the most intimate of all, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Like building blocks in a building literally cemented together. That's what Paul's saying. We are cemented together. You don't get to run away. Now, I'm not talking about Christ Central in particular, y'all. Because you may get a job change and you move to another city and you're, you know, you're get involved in another church there. But the Lord willing, you'll also become cemented to those people. You don't get, the Bible is saying, you don't get to escape this thing that we call church. And it's real tough. Because people are people. But this is what our hearts long for. And this is what God is doing in the gospel. You, you're, one of your greatest longings, I can speak for myself for sure, is to know other people at an intimate level and be known by other people at an intimate level. And the Bible is saying, you are going to feel an intimacy with those inside the church that you may not feel for people who are in your own family that don't know Jesus Christ. That's what God is building. This is not a human invention. This is not a neat thing for us to do together on a Sunday morning. Paul is saying this is what the church is. It is a family. It is people cemented together because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And because you were far off and you were isolated and you were alone, I want you to find this place on this earth where you don't feel that anymore. Where your life isn't hell. Where you can be together with people who will truly love you even in your nastiness and in your sin. It's such an incredible vision. And I know we fail at it plenty 
as the church. And I'm not just talking about Christ Central, but the church at large, right? We poo-poo. Okay, application points. Okay, finally, finally, I'm, I'm ending with this, I promise. What does this look like in the real world? What does it look like to be fellow citizens, to be members of the same household, to be cemented together as building blocks for the Holy Spirit to live? Paul tells us <laughs> in other passages. He says, I want you to confess to one another. Confess to one another. Are you confessing to anybody in this church? You're like real sins. Not like, well, I made a little boo-boo yesterday and I was a little bit mean to somebody that is down the street from us. I said some unnice things to them. But how about, you know, like real stuff. Like, I'm really struggling with addiction. I need your help with this. I need some accountability. I need some, I need some love in these ways. Like, that's the kind of confession that Paul's talking about. And confession, not just to me, not just to the pastor. That's not at all how God set up the church. It's supposed to be among the people. We are a holy nation, a priesthood of fellow believers who can confess to one another. And then Paul says, bear each other's burdens. Help someone in here take a load off. Find out what the load is for the people sitting around you and help take him off a little bit. Take a piece of it. Somebody can't make rent, chip in 100 bucks so they can make rent. That's the kind of thing that Paul is getting at in this, in, when he talks about being together. Keep meeting together. Woo! We got Sunday morning. But he's saying keep meeting together other times too. Break bread with one another. Right? Or eat wings, or whatever. Whatever your, your personal preference is. Be together. Invite someone in here over for a meal. And then here's a tough one that Paul talks about. Forgive one another. Oh, Jiminy. Say to someone when you've been hurt and seek reconciliation. If we do that, and we do that well because of what Christ has done for us and because he has forgiven us, y'all watch out, world. You can't stop. There's, there's a book I love. It's called Church of Irresistible Influence. And y'all, my, my, the church I imagine of irresistible influence is a place where people just forgive each other because Jesus Christ forgave them. That's radical. That's exactly what our world is not doing. Our world is holding grudges and pulling out guns and blowing other people's heads off. And finally, don't badmouth other churches or other Christians. That, uh, we want to spread a unity. And it's easy to be like, well, their theology is a little bit different, or it's kind of off. I think they're just weird. Or they like do this on Sunday morning or whatever it is. I, we all have our foibles, right? But the reality is he's saying, I want the church to be, reflect this truth on every level, even if the theology is a little different or a little off, or you think this church emphasizes this too much or they don't emphasize that enough. Love, love, love. That is such an incredible vision for the church. Wouldn't that be awesome? I mean, Charlottesville would be a different place if that was true for all of us Christians. It would be sweet. Okay. But of course, this is all only from and to Jesus Christ. We, do, we, can't, we can't just wake up in the morning and be like, okay, I'm going to do all those things Nathan talked about. We can't do that. We have to know that we have first been forgiven, that Christ bears our loads, that Christ is the one who unites us. He is the one who brought us near. His blood opened up the pathway so that we could be in. 
and so that we could experience this type of love and no longer be alone. You have been invited into the one thing that the rest of the world does not have or does not know, and that is relationship with the God of the universe. Wow. That is the greatest privilege a person could ever have. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this teaching from Ephesians. Lord, I know I have not done it justice, but Lord, you are the one who call us into relationship with yourself, first of all. You are the one, Jesus, who reconciled us to God the Father. But of course, then you, Lord, call us into relationship with one another. Lord, I pray that Christ Central would not be known for, oh, they've got whatever, great music, or they've got a good building, or they've got this, that, and the other. Lord, I pray that we would be known as a place where people love each other. And, 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 and through the hard stuff. Lord, even as we get to know one another and we see <laughs> all the annoying traits and the irritating traits of, of Nathan and other people, Lord, I pray that our love would only increase. Lord, and that we would collectively find healing with one another from the aloneness and the loneliness that we all feel from our sin and from the things that tug us away from you, Lord. By the power of your Spirit and for your glory alone, draw us together as a church. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we enter,